you would please, uh, as the children are coming in, if you would go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. We'll be continuing in Colossians this evening. And uh, we'll be in Colossians 2. Uh, I'll read verses 1 through 5, but really we're going to be focusing on the first four. Uh, first four verses of Colossians uh, chapter 2 tonight. Colossians uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Now, in recent, uh, recent weeks, as uh, we've been working our way through uh, Colossians chapter 1, we've seen how Paul has been declaring to this church that he never personally met his ministry of the gospel. This was a ministry that involved suffering. It was a suffering in which he said he was filling up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. That is, he was filling up what was lacking in the sufferings of the body of Christ, that body of which Christ himself is the head, and we are the members. Paul described his ministry as a stewardship, which was conferred on him by God to the end that he would proclaim Christ, to the end that he would admonish every man and teach every man with all wisdom, so that he might present every man complete in Christ. And to this end, Paul directed his, his labor and his striving. And there at the end of chapter 1, he said that he was striving according to the Lord's power, which was mightily working within him. And as he continues here in chapter 2, he, he gets to the point, as it were, he gets to the point of why he's, why he's doing this. Why is he laboring? Why is he having this great struggle as he says in verse 1, on behalf of the Colossians and the Laodiceans and for all those who haven't seen him personally, I think we can faithfully summarize Paul's answer by saying that his labor and his struggle was for their spiritual benefit, for their spiritual benefit, so that no one would lead them astray. That's what he's saying here. His labor and struggle for the Colossians and for all these other Christians who had not yet seen him had not seen him personally is for their spiritual benefit so that no one would lead them astray. He describes that spiritual benefit there in verses 2 and 3 and he speaks of the danger of delusion there in verse 4. And so let's consider, consider what he says. He says that he has a great struggle. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and who have not seen my face. What was this struggle that Paul was having? Well, it was his labor in the gospel. 
He labored for these Christians by means of prayer. We've already seen here in chapter 1 how he prayed for them. He says, since the day we heard of it, since the day we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and so on. He, he prayed for them. He, he wrote to them. He took the trouble to send them this epistle and sent an epistle to the Laodiceans as well. And he is concerned for them and he is burdened for the churches of Christ. Just think of, just think of what he, he says to the Corinthians where he says, who is, who is led into sin and I do not burn? And he, he speaks of the burden that he, he has for the churches of Christ. And his labor and struggle was aimed at their spiritual benefit, which is laid out there in verses 2 and 3. And I think, I think the ESV rendering may be uh, somewhat more helpful here than the, than the New American Standard rendering when it says that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the full, uh, excuse me, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now let's let's look at those three specific things that he mentions there in verse two. Three three specific things. He wants believers to be encouraged in heart. He wants believers to be knit together in love. He wants believers to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Those three things, encouraged in heart, knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. And then in what remains in the rest of verse 2 and in verse 3, he uh, gives an elaboration of the kind of understanding of which he is speaking. What is this this riches of full assurance of understanding? Well, he he describes that. And uh, I think... Unfortunately, the word and that shows up in the ESV, the, the ESV is uh, somewhat more of a helpful translation here. The, the and I, uh, that, that shows up between the word understanding and the knowledge, that, that word and there I think would better be translated as in or into. In other words, this full assurance of understanding which Paul has in mind here is a full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, namely in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so, with that said, let's, let's think about those three things that he mentions there in verse 2. The encouraged in heart, knit together in love, and reaching the, uh, all the riches of full assurance of understanding. And so... First, he mentions this this encouragement of their hearts, that their hearts may be encouraged. Or, as King James translated it, that their hearts may be comforted. That their hearts may be comforted. I think the the Huguenot preacher Jean Dale was onto something when he described this encouragement of the heart as being that calm and tranquility which their souls enjoy. Amidst the tempests of this life, when they sweetly repose themselves on their master's word and are assured of his salvation, notwithstanding the menaces and persecutions of the enemy and their failures and imperfections. See, we can have this encouragement, this comfort in our hearts by resting ourselves on the word of God and being assured of his salvation even though the enemy buffets us, even though we ourselves are full of sin and failures. 
this is true encouragement. This is true comfort. Whatever else may serve to encourage us or comfort us on an earthly plane pales in comparison to this. Namely, the only true encouragement of our hearts and souls is the gospel of Christ. It is, in the words of the hymn, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Given the multitude of of our own sins, the fact that we deserve judgment from God, and the fact that if God were to judge us in strict justice, we would be undone, given the hostilities of the world, the temptations and deceits of the devil, the only true encouragement and consolation is to rest ourselves in Christ as our Savior, to rest in Christ as our mediator, our sacrifice, our priest, our intercessor. I think the Heidelberg Catechism expressed this sentiment so beautifully in that first question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, who so preserves my life that apart from the will of his Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, and all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. That's where true encouragement, true comfort is found in knowing Christ and in knowing that we belong to him. And so Paul labors for this. This is, this is what Paul is laboring for, that these believers here in Colossae and Laodicea, these others who had not seen him, would be encouraged in their hearts, encouraged by the gospel, encouraged in Christ. And he also labors, he says, so that these Christians may be knit together in love. As believers in the same gospel, who've been redeemed by the same Lord who've been called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength, we are also called to love one another. This is so much the case that John tells us, 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. As those who have been loved by God, we love the God who first loved us, and in turn, we love those who are loved by Him. And this love, in turn, works in such a way as to knit together those who share in it. We're, we're joined by this love. Paul will go on in uh, chapter 3, verse 14 of Colossians, and call love the perfect bond of unity. Paul labors that the hearts of these Christians might be knit together in love. And then the third quality for which Paul struggles and labors for these Christians is that they may reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. That is to say that they may have a great and deep understanding and that their understanding may be of, of such a depth and such a strength that they are assured of the truth, that they have a firm persuasion of the things that they know and believe. That is to say, a firm persuasion, as as Paul goes on to put it, in a true knowledge of God's mystery, 
who is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is what he struggles for, that they may have this deep and rich understanding, this full persuasion in their minds concerning Christ, in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All spiritual wisdom, all spiritual knowledge is to be found in him. If that's what we're after, we must look to him, to Christ, to nowhere else, because it is in him that these things are found. And here in context, it becomes clear why Paul is struggling for these goods in the lives of these Christians. He wants these good things to become realities in their lives. And he says them, as he says in verse 4, so that no one will delude you by persuasive argument. And it is here, in a way, that Paul kind of tips his hand as to, to why he's even writing this letter. Certainly he's writing for the edification of Christians to proclaim Christ to them once again, to re-entrench them, as it were, and to further establish them in the truths which they have believed and so on. But it's not merely just at random that Paul is, is writing this letter to this church at this time. He is writing to them because he has come to understand that they are in danger of being deluded by false teachers who were employing persuasive, deceptive words. And thus, to keep them from such falsehoods, he warns them of the falsehoods that they may be on guard against it. And indeed, as chapter 2 unfolds, we'll see more of this warning against the false doctrine which is being foisted upon this church. Paul doesn't want them to be deluded by it, so he warns them against it. But, and this is important for us to grasp here, if we're paying attention to, to Paul's argument here in the, the letter to the Colossians, you'll notice that he's not merely warning against false teaching, saying, this is what it is, this is what they're saying, this is bad, don't believe it, don't do it, don't follow it. Paul is warning. He is calling out the teacher, but he's also, in doing this, combating this false teaching by showing them the superiority of the gospel, the superiority of Christ. These false teachers were, were coming along and seeking to delude by persuasive arguments, as he would put it there in chapter 2, verse 8, seeking to take these Christians captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Meanwhile, Paul says, no, these persuasive arguments are merely a delusion. This philosophy that claims to be wisdom is not wise at all. Why? Because all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. And he reminds them of the truth of Christ and the glories of Christ so that they may be grounded in him. And I think that this is instructive to us in our current context here in the West. The various false teachings of our day are no doubt uh, somewhat unlike this heresy which was posing a danger to the church at Colossae, right? They were kind of mixing together some, uh, some Jewish asceticism and some proto-Gnostic philosophy or something and, and trying to, to foist it on the gospel of Christ. I don't, I don't think there's so much of that going on in our context, but Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. And the false teaching of our day is like this insofar as it seeks to delude 
by persuasive argument. If you were to pick your poison and look at the various ideologies that are out there in the world, do they not all seek to do the same thing in one way or the other? To delude by persuasive argument. So many of the falsehoods of the world are persuasive because they start with truth or at least a grain of truth and then emphasize that truth to the exclusion of other truths, all the while drawing false implications from the truth that they claim. Now this is the way it usually works with doctrinal heresy. The, the saying is that every heretic has his verse. And that's true, isn't it? Doesn't it work that way? That somebody comes along, they pick a verse, take it completely out of context, ignore the rest of the Bible, and run along, and there you have heresy. But there is some persuasiveness to this, isn't it? Some people are persuaded by it. Some people follow it. There's some rhetorical power uh, to the heresy and those expounding it. And this is sometimes also the way that it works in regard to moral aberrations, which seek to work their way into the life of the church. Some might take the, the glorious biblical statement that God is love, and then proceed from there down a line of deductions which do not truly follow from the phrase, God is love, when we understand it biblically and according to all of the counsel of God. But some might seek to start with that phrase and then proceed to say, well, love implies acceptance. If God is love, then God accepts all kinds of things, including behaviors X, Y, and Z. To do otherwise would be to hate. Therefore, if you do otherwise, you are a hater, and on and on it goes. You see the point, falsehoods often come to us under delusive, persuasive arguments. And if we would be Christians and would overcome such destructive errors, then we need to, to look at how Paul approached the situation. Now he approached this situation here under the inspiration of the Spirit. And as I've said, he warned, not only, uh, not only warned against the error, but he also reminded them of the glories of Christ and the truth of the gospel. He told them that in having Christ, they had all that they needed. He told them that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are not found out there, they're found in Christ. And so he says, don't be deceived by those who are seeking to show you some other wisdom and some other knowledge. It's all found in Christ and this is why he struggles for them. And this is why he struggles for them, that their hearts may be encouraged, that their hearts may be knit together in love, and that they may attain to the riches of full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And these, these, things, these things are related together. Paul's struggle for those three things that we've seen in verse 2 is related to the fact that he is seeking to guard them from the false teaching. And you can see why. Because when we have full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of Christ, we're placed in that position that Paul described in Ephesians 4, 13 through 15, in which we attain to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. 
And so you see, when we have the full assurance of understanding into the knowledge of Christ, we're not going to be caught by the trickery. We'll, we'll see through it. And we will grow up in all things into Christ and not be tossed here and there by the various waves and winds of doctrine and the trickery of men. This also holds true in regard to being knit together in love in the body of Christ with one another. Because when that is true, when we are knit together in love, we stand fast as a body, lovingly watching out for each other's spiritual well-being. In Christ, when we are knit together, we give to one another the acceptance and the love and the sense of community which the world desperately longs for, and we hold one another accountable. We build one another up. We edify so that collectively we may stand against the lies of the enemy. And when we have hearts that are encouraged, hearts that are comforted in Christ, knowing the joy of having sins forgiven and being freely accepted by God on account of Christ, having confidence that our lives are freely accepted by God through Christ's sacrifice, that our times are in his hands and that he's causing all things to work together for our good, when we have this kind of encouragement and comfort in our hearts, this will serve to anchor us in such a way that we are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which we have heard. So in short, beloved, if you would stand firm in Christ, then you must not only beware of those who might delude you with persuasive argument, but you must also seek to find your comfort in Christ. You must also seek to be knit together in love with the body of Christ. And you must also continually seek to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding into the knowledge of God's mystery. This mystery now revealed, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so how do we, how do, we do that? How do we seek those three things that Paul is seeking for these Christians here? How do we seek after this, this encouragement of heart, this being knit together in love, and this attaining to the riches of full assurance of understanding? Well, to find our comfort, our encouragement in Christ, we must continually turn to Him when we're in the dark. When the darkness is due to our sins, we must run to Him for forgiveness and restoration. We must run to Him as our great high priest. When the darkness is due to the craziness and busyness of the world, the difficulty of circumstances, the sins of others, we must still run to Christ and find our consolation in Him, finding our peace, our sense of self-worth, our refuge, our defense in Him. We pour out our heart to God the Father in prayer through Him. To be knit together in love, secondly, takes work, doesn't it? We become knit together in love bit by bit, over time, as a body, by, by being together, by being involved in one another's lives, by worshiping together, by praying together corporately, by talking to one another, finding out what's going on in one another's lives. You can do this here at church when we gather. You can do this before or after a service or at a church meal or to camp out, as some of us did on Friday night. You can do this by seeking to have edifying conversations with one another, whether those conversations take place in your home or some other one-on-one -on -one setting. Or sometimes uh, these discussions take the form of more public conversations. And like our adult Sunday school, as we're uh, working through uh, 
we wrapped up First Samuel this morning, or a Wednesday night Bible study, or uh, our small group Bible study. Sometimes those kinds of formats of, of kind of a public discussion, if you will, can be very helpful in regard to thinking through Scripture or doctrine uh, together. To be knit together in love is to be intertwined and involved with one another. And this takes work, but it is ultimately for the good of our souls, so that we may stand fast, so that no one will delude us by persuasive arguments, but that we may be grounded in Christ. And in order to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, we must continue to look to the Word of God. That is to say, we must read it ourselves and ask the Lord's blessing upon it. We must gather together with the body of Christ and hear it taught and preached. We need to be thinking, meditating on the Scripture, talking about it with others, for those of us who, who have families, one way to do this is by having regular family worship or family devotions. In my house, we call it Bible time. Whatever you want to call it, this is a good way for parents, husbands in particular, to take the lead in reading and discussing the Scripture with their families. And at the end of the day, this is what we need to, to stand fast, these, these three things, that our hearts may be encouraged in Christ, that we be knit together in love with the body of Christ, and that we be progressing toward these riches of full assurance of understanding. And then, when those, when those things are in place and are working as they ought to by the blessing of God, from that vantage point, when false teaching comes knocking, at that point we can say with Tertullian in the ancient church, who said, we want no curious disputation after possessing Christ Jesus, no speculation after enjoying the gospel. With our faith, we desire no further belief, for this is our prime belief, that there is nothing more we should believe besides. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for Christ and the fact that all the riches of wisdom and knowledge, everything that we need for life and godliness is found in Christ. We thank you that all that we need is so freely given to us in the gospel. Father, we ask for your grace that we would not neglect these things, but that we would grow in them, that we would grow in encouragement and comfort, that we would grow in our assurance, that we would, in all things, grow up into him who is the head and no longer be tossed about by the winds. We pray, Father, that you give us hearts that are knit together in love so that we may stand together as your people, with your people, against all the lies and falsehoods of the world. We give you thanks for your grace toward us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.